Hello, welcome to Know the Faith, Defend the Faith. My name is William Hemsworth, and thank you for joining me. Uh, my guest, he's a popular author, speaker. He's been on over 180 excursions to the mid, to the Holy Land, author of uh, Crossing the Tiber, St. John's Gospel, and has a great movie called Mary, Mother of God. Uh, Steve Ray, how are you doing today? Good, William. Thanks. It's a joy to be with you today. Oh, it's a pleasure, and thank you for joining me on this great feast. As we're recording, it's the Feast of the Assumption, and um, when we scheduled this, I didn't realize it, so it's awesome to have you on to talk about our Blessed Mother today. Thank you. It's a good topic. <laughs> so, as, as I said in the introduction, you've been to Israel over 180 times, and you made a movie on Mary. Tell us a little bit about her life 2,000 years ago. There's the movie, if you can see it, Mary, Mother of God, and it's all filmed on location in Israel and Greece and Turkey actually, and uh, follow Mary, all the footprints of Mary, and in each location, we follow her life through each location, and I defend and explain the doctrines and dogmas of Mary that pertain to each of those places. So it's, uh, it was a, uh, an, an amazing um, project, and we love doing it, and it's on sale at my website. I just put a plug in at catholicconvert.com. There's nine movies, Abraham, Moses, a whole bunch of them, all the biblical characters, a whole story of salvation history, and buy the whole set. It's on a discount. Okay, got that over with. Also, pilgrimages are starting up again on April 8th. Yes. If anybody wants to go to Israel, we're starting up again in April. Well, I've been to the Holy Land over 180 times, and that doesn't count Egypt and Jordan and Iraq and Syria and all the other places I've been to. Um, and I have always loved the Bible, and I had um, I want to take people there in the movies and in person, but those who can't afford to go, I like to take them there in, in the movies so that they can see these places are real. They really exist. The stories are true. They're not just once upon a time in a land far away. It was not a fairy tale. This is true history. That's the beauty of Christianity. It's, it's rooted in the real world and in history. And so that's one of the great joys that we've had in our life is being able to uh, travel all those places. I, I have a goal of visiting every place mentioned in the Bible by the time I die. And I think my wife and I are close to 90 to 95% of the places so far. Oh, wow. What, what's left? Um, some places in Iraq. Okay. There's some places in Iraq I want to go. Um, there's some places in Turkey that I have not visited yet, very few. I've mostly visited all the biblical sites in Turkey, the seven uh, letters of Paul. Um, and uh, everything in Israel I visited, though. Everything in Israel and the Palestinian areas in Jordan and Syria, all those biblical areas I visited every place. So we're getting close. Okay. Well, great. Now, you and I are both converts, and... What did you think of Mary as an evangelical Protestant? How has that changed when you converted up till now? Well, this is kind of a crude way to say it, but I, we would have said it this way. She was simply a vaginal conduit, yep. and she was no different than any other girl. God just chose her, and he used her like a pipeline. And he pushed his son right through there, and there he was, and Mary fell off the, kind of, off the screen. And Jesus was what's important, not Mary. And all of the dogmas of the Catholic Church are man-made traditions. The Immaculate Conception, the sinlessness, the perpetual virginity. Of course, we know that's not true because it said Jesus had brothers. So, of course, Mary had other kids. Of course, we're thinking like Americans when we read that. We're not thinking in yeah. biblical terms. 
And the assumption, of course, I'd say, where do you find that in the Bible? And the queenship of Mary, all that's just uh, Roman Catholic mumbo jumbo. The Pope didn't have anything to do one day, so he just decided, hey, I'll make up a new doctrine today. And he did, and the Catholics are gullible enough to follow him, so there we go. So that was my Protestant position on it all. And Mary, obviously, was the Catholics worship her, and she's the fourth person of the Trinity now. We call it a Trinity, but the, for the Catholic, it's really a quadrinity. Does that, that sound was, about right? That's definitely what I thought at one point. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you hit it right on the head. So what was the main source of information that opened your eyes to Mary? The Old Testament. Okay. People think, what did you find in the New Testament about Mary? I learned about Mary and was convinced of the Catholic teaching on her because of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament has what we call typology. There are pictures and images of things in the Old Testament, which look forward to what's going to be coming in Christ and the new covenant. And you couldn't really understand or see them until Christ came. And he's like the lens. Once Christ came, you look back through the lens of Christ at the Old Testament. And all of a sudden, oh, 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 water baptism is going through the Red Sea. Um, all of a sudden, all, Pentecost is Mount Sinai, where fire came down. Everything that, all of the things that are in the New Testament were really all prefigured and pictured for us ahead of time in the Old Testament, and Mary's no exception to that. That's called typology. Augustine said that the Old Testament is the new concealed. In other words, everything in the New Testament is there in the Old. It's just concealed until Christ comes. After Christ, now the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The two work together hand in hand. Jesus is like the conductor in the middle between the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament throws up a theme, a musical theme. Jesus, the conductor, the New Testament develops that theme, beautiful with violins and oboes and cellos. And then he goes back and another theme comes up out of the Old Testament. Jesus conducts and all the, and it's just a beautiful symphony between the two. And so many people are deprived of that because they don't read or understand or care about the Old Testament. They only care about the new. Why would we care about the old when we have the new? So that was that. And now, the, not only typology, but also when we look at the kingdom of Israel, it is the people of God. And we call ourselves the new Israel. And the new Israel should look quite a bit like the old Israel. It should have the same structure of authority. It's not a new, totally radically new thing. It is Israel just with the Messiah now. So it's going to be relatively the same. And so you look back and you say, well, how did the kings function in Israel? What did the kings do? What offices did they have? And you're pretty likely going to find that Jesus, the new king of Israel, is going to be functioning pretty much like the kings of the old Israel. And of course, that's the case. What did the kings of the old Israel do? They had royal stewards that carried their keys. Uh, ding, 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 ding. I, right. You are Peter and on this rock and I give you the keys of the kingdom. There, Jesus, the king, is appointing his new steward. The kings of Israel, we'll get into this more, appointed their mothers to be the queens. Ding, ding, ding again. That should ring a bell. Mary is the queen of heaven. And oftentimes, oh, we'll get into that. I don't want to jump ahead of the game, but <laughs> my point was is that the Old Testament, in learning about the Old Testament in light of the new, all of a sudden, Mary came very much alive. I got this, this image here of Mary, and it shows a lot of things from the Old Testament. Here's the Ark of the Covenant. Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant. 
she is also the queen of heaven. Look at the crown of Thor, uh, the crown of twelve stars on her head. There's a lot of things that Mary fulfills from the Old Testament, and we'll talk about it more as we go along. Now, one of the titles that we have for Mary is uh, the Mother of God. Where did that come from? Why is that important? Mary, the Mother of God, was defined officially in 431 in they knew that Mary had been in Ephesus with St. John when he was bishop there. And there was a church there called the Church of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And it was where the council was held. And in that council, they determined that Mary was the Theotokos. That is a Greek word. Theo means God. Tokos means bearer, carrier. That was the, in, translated into English. It's God bearer or God, the mother of God. And you had to say that or you were a heretic. It was one of those litmus tests. All right, William, who is Mary? Is she the mother of God? And you say, no, she's the mother of Jesus. Heretic! Yeah. Simple as that. Now, as a Protestant, I couldn't say mother of God because I misunderstood and thought we meant mother of the Trinity. And too many Protestants think that. When we say mother of God, what we mean is that God, the second person of the Trinity, decided to become man. He didn't lose his divinity. He was 100% God, but he took on human form. So he had a human nature. It was a divine person. He's only one person, but he has two natures, divine and human. And so if he is God, then guess what Mary is? She is the mother of a divine person. She gave birth to a divine person without a human father. So she is the mother of a divine person. Simplify that. Just say she's the mother of God. And he, she's also his mother, so he's obviously human too, because he came, you know, came from her. He's got cells. He gave, his DNA came from Mary. You asked why was Mary important. Jesus had the DNA, the genetic code of Mary. No earthly father. He carries her genetic code. He looked like her. He acted like her. And I bet you he had a lot of the characteristics of his mother, Mary, not only in physical characteristics, but in mannerisms as well. Maybe he learned some of his parables from Mary and Joseph. And so in, become, in becoming her son, he is also 100% human. So that's what the phrase mother of God was defined there because some were saying she was only the mother of Jesus and that this kind of a divine phantom came over him what, during his lifetime, some kind of a divinity cloud or something. But he was really not God. He was really a man, but he had this divine presence with him. And the council of the church said, no, that's heresy. He's God and man, mother of God, which puts her in a pretty good position. If she's been chosen, she is the chosen mother. So look at her relationship. She is the chosen daughter of the father. He specially chose her to do this. She is the chosen mother of the son, and she is the spouse of the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty amazing thing. You are the chosen daughter of the father, the chosen mother of the son, and the chosen spouse of the Holy Spirit. And that's a pretty awesome relationship with the Trinity that none of us could ever come close to having. We don't have that relationship with the Trinity, but Mary does. That puts her in a category all by herself. So the title of Mother of God, then, it's important not only for Mary, but to have a proper understanding of who Jesus is? Yes. In my movie, Mary, the mother I showed you, um, yeah. I actually go in Jerusalem to a, a castle and it has a moat around it. And I'm down in the moat. 
And I'm saying, if I'm after the king up there, I first have to negotiate the moat and then crawl up the walls to get the king. But the moat around the castle protects the king. Mary and the Marian dogmas are more about Jesus than they are about Mary. Mary is not the essential one. Jesus is. The dogmas and doctrines we have about Mary protect the king. You have to go through those dogmas to get to him. And all the dogmas about Mary are telling you something about her son. So I view Mary, and I did this in the movie, I viewed her as the moat around the castle, which protected the king. Wow, that's a great analogy. Now, since she's the mother of King Jesus, how did we become to know her as queen? I know we touched upon it earlier, but... Well, the beautiful thing is, is go back to the Old Testament, and you have kings there who had a lot of wives. Solomon, for example, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a thousand women. You know, between you and me, Solomon was a very busy man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> One is enough for me. <laughs> One's enough for me. <laughs> and... When it came to time to pick a queen, which one are you going to pick? The prettiest one, the smartest one, the one you get along with the best? Which one? Or the one that has the noblest, maybe she's the queen, of uh, the daughter of the pharaoh or the daughter of... Who, you pick, how do you pick the right one? But the, what happened was in Solomon's reign, he was in his throne room when he was a new king, just a young boy, actually. We think that he was maybe just a teenager, actually, a young guy. And he, after he kills all of his enemies, smart thing for the young king to do. He had a lot of enemies trying to subvert him. The next thing that he did in 1 Kings chapter 2 is appoint his queen. And here's how he did it. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19. Anybody can double check me on this. When you walked into the throne room, there was one throne. But his mother walked in one day, which you don't ever do. Everybody knows the story of Esther in the Bible, even when she walked into the throne room of her relative, family, the wife, she could be killed. You don't walk into the, th when I did this talk in London and in Ireland, I, it's kind of interesting there because they have kings and empires and they know this stuff. Americans lost all of our concept of kingdoms and empires, so we don't understand the Bible because the Bible is a kingdom. It's talking about a kingdom. God did not promise us a democracy, he promised us a kingdom. And when I was in England, I told this story and I said, what happens if the queen, if anybody walks into Queen Elizabeth II's throne room unsummoned, pushes her way past the guards and walks in and they all laughed and go, <laughs> that's what happens to her, to him. But um, his mother walked into the throne room and it said Solomon got up off his throne and he prostrated himself. He says that he bowed to his mother, prostrated himself. And he got back up, sat on his throne. And then he had a new throne put at the right hand side of his. So now there's two thrones in the throne room and he places his mother on that throne and she ruled in the kingdom with Solomon and the queen mother would act as the intercessor for the people. Uh oh, ding, 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 ding. There's another bell should ring in everyone's head. The queen mother would act as the intercessor. Now, when the queen mother would, uh, when the, um, the king would die, say that he didn't have any older sons. So who's gonna inherit the throne as a young boy, maybe four or five years old. And this has happened in biblical history. So, so you've got a five-year-old kid sitting on a throne. What the heck does he know about ruling in a kingdom? But who's sitting next to him? The queen mother. Who's teaching that boy how to be the king? The queen mother. Who's running the kingdom until he gets older? The queen mother. 
So you get an idea that in the Old Testament, the queen mother was held a very important position. She was called the Geburah in Aramaic, which means the great lady, queen mother. And when you go back and read the Old Testament from Solomon on, from the establishment of the kingdom of Israel, you see that every time it mentions a king, it always mentions also his mother because she was sitting at his right hand. Now, just everybody knows where we're going with this. This is the Old Testament. Jesus is the king at the cave in Nazareth when the angel came to Mary, says you're going to give birth to a son. His name will be Jesus, and he will sit on the throne of his father, David. There's been no king on the throne of David for 600 years. Israel has been ruled over by other countries. Now the new king is coming. Mary is the mother of this king. He's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. I think Mary's first thought is, oh, I'm going to be a queen. Because she knew her Bible. And she knew her history. And so when Mary now, when Jesus becomes the king, is he going to do any less than Solomon? Is he going, well, and I like to say, what does the king of Israel do? The king of Israel does what the king of Israel does. And what does the king of Israel do? He appoints his mother as the queen. And there you have Mary, the queen of heaven. Makes a lot of sense when you put it that way. A lot of, I put to up explain. a blog today, by the way, on my website. So I know this is going to be edited. We're doing this on the feast, recording on the feast of the Assumption. And I put up a couple blogs, and people can go back and look at those. One is about uh, Mary being the assumed into heaven and becoming the queen. And I give all of this Old Testament background for it. I give all that information. And also about if Mary needs a savior. Because she said, I, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And I, don't, I as a Protestant, I always say, well, who needs a Savior but a sinner? Mary's a sinner. Right. But I explain all of that as well. So if people want to go back and see it on my blog. Definitely. I'll put those in the notes so people can check them out. Thanks. Oh, pleasure. So speaking of, um, one of the things we talk about as Catholics is we believe in her perpetual virginity. Why do we do that when the Bible mentions that Jesus had brothers? Well, there's a very interesting um, story written in the second century. It's called the Proto-Evangelium of James. And it was very held in very high esteem by the early Christians. In fact, we have a feast day for Joachim and Anna, the mother of Mary, but that's not told to us in the Bible. We get that from the second century document called the Proto-Evangelium, the first good news of James. And in that document, it presents Joseph as an older man. The church has never defined whether he's a young single guy or an older widower. This document presents Joseph as an older man who is a widower with other sons and daughters by a previous marriage. And the early church, that's what they believed. And the Eastern church, all of the Eastern church still believes that, but the Western church later began to think of Joseph as a young man. But from the beginning, from the very earliest times, they always considered Joseph as an older man with other sons and daughters, which would be very apropos because then those brothers or sisters would be his stepbrothers and stepsisters. And I could show in the Bible some indications that that is the case. We don't have time here. But in, in either case, Mary, when she at the um, Annunciation, when the angel says you're going to give birth to a son, she has a very strange response, which indicates her, uh, her choice and decision to be a, a celibate, to be a, a virgin, be, uh, to have made a pledge. And in Numbers chapter 30 of the Bible, it says that a single woman or a wife can make such a pledge, a vow, 
and she's held to the vow as long as her father allows it or her husband allows it. So we already even have that Old Testament background for such a vow. But when the angel says to her, you're going to give birth to a son, any normal girl would say, oh, that's wonderful. All the girls in Israel want to be the mother of the Messiah. We want to be, that's great. I'm getting married. I'm already engaged. I'm betrothed. I'll be married. And as soon as we do, we'll have that baby for you, angel. And, but the angel said, no, no. Um, she says, Mary responds back, how can that be? Because I know not a man. Well, if she's betrothed and going to get married, then she, what kind of an answer is that? The answer should have been, I'm, I'm betrothed and get married, so that's great. How can I help? But she says, I'm not going to get married. I mean, I'm not going to have sexual relations. It was like, if Joseph was an older man, that makes a lot of sense. He's already had his family. He's an older man. He's been giving to her just as a protector, as a husband protector for this new child in Mary. And Mary has made a vow of celibacy. Now that is also comes from that document, the Proto-Evangelium of James, where it says that Mary was from the very beginning, had been committed by her mother to the temple, and she herself chose to be a, a virgin, a, a celibate. And um, so the whole idea of her saying that she's not going to know a man in sexual ways is a very interesting thing, and that's right in Scripture. So it's... It, like Thomas Aquinas said, it wasn't necessary for her. No, I'm thinking of, of the um, ever virgin, not the um, never having sinned. But the, the idea of if she's the spouse of the Holy Spirit, Thomas Aquinas does give four reasons why her ever virginity, I was thinking of another situation, but he also does four reasons why her ever virginity is, is um proper one is because it would do grievous uh, harm to the uniqueness of her son her son is a son of god well, then what are the other kids that come along are they half god how do you view them i mean it's going to be a problem so he he's a unique son to mary it would be uh so it would it would be against his uniqueness it would also um thomas aquinas said for mary it would be a lack of gratefulness. She's been given the son who is the son of God. Why would you want other sons? It would be given Joseph presumption that Mary being the spouse of the Holy Spirit, that Joseph would have sexual relationship with her. And so Thomas Aquinas gives four reasons why it was proper for Mary to be without sin and to have not have other children. Now, in the Bible, it says that Jesus has brothers, and in that term, it can easily mean cousins, because in the Hebrew, there was no word for cousin. When Abraham is referring to his nephew, Lot, he refers to Lot as my brother. There are many cases in the Bible, even, where someone who is another relationship calls somebody their brother. What it really means is kin, K-I-N. They are my relatives. They are my family. They're my brothers. When you, I even know, for example, our former bus driver, he live, his parents live on the first floor. He has three brothers. When he, the first one got married, they built another level on the house and he moved in with his wife and kids. Then the second son got married and then the third son got married. They all live on stacked on top of each other. And all of those kids play together. They're brothers. 
they don't even think of themselves as cousins. They think of themselves as brothers. They're always together in that house. There's another way of viewing this too, is that I learned that when a mother had a baby and she didn't have milk, she didn't lactate or have enough milk to, to feed the baby, she couldn't go to CVS and get formula because they didn't have that back then. If the baby was going to live, she had to find another woman called a wet nurse, usually another relative or close, who would breastfeed that baby until they could eat solid food. And in Israel and in the Middle East, it's known that any baby that drinks from the same breast is a milk brother that person is your brother for life because you drank from the same breast. So there's a lot of ways the word brother can be used in the Bible. And to just assume that when it says that Mary came with Jesus's brothers, that, you're, that she has other brothers is a big assumption to make, especially in biblical times. And um, it never says Mary had other children. It only refers to her as Mary, the mother of Jesus. It never says Mary, the mother of Jesus, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and others. But it, she was always referred to as Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I contend that the others are either cousins or they are stepbrothers. And that's what the church has held from the very beginning. Anybody who wants to read more, read Jerome, St. Jerome, Doctor of the Church, his treatise against Helvidius. Where a guy named Servetius in about the third century presumed to make the suggestion that Mary had other kids and Jerome ate the guy for lunch. Yeah, that's quite an interesting uh, read. <laughs> <laughs> that's what convinced my wife of the doctrines of Mary. She read Jerome's treatise against Helvetius and she said, That answered my questions. I'm yeah. no, Mary's no longer an issue for me. Yeah, it was and pretty. Pretty cut and dry. <laughs> yeah, it was always believed by the early church. No one challenged that stuff except for Helvidius and a few heretics until the Reformation came along. Right. So speaking of the early church, what can we see from the early church regarding Mary's role, especially at the cross and at Pentecost? Uh, Mary is not always mentioned a lot in the Bible because the focus is always on Jesus, but she's placed at the right times and in important places. Luke writes the book of Luke and Acts, and he does something interesting. In the book of Luke, it begins with Mary waiting to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit to give birth to Jesus. In the book of Acts, it begins with Mary waiting to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit to give birth to Jesus, the mystical body. That's how he starts both of his writings, by putting Mary front and center as waiting to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, we see her in the upper room, and when I take my groups there, I always stop in the upper room and explain why I think there's two reasons Mary was there, and it mentions her specifically. I know Mary was in a lot of the places, but it doesn't mention her specifically. Here it does because it's, I think, very significant. First of all, these guys are afraid of God. I'm convinced of that. The book of Acts says they were afraid of the Romans, but I think they were also afraid of God because they had heard that fire was going to come down. And they're on a mountain, Mount Sinai, and they heard that the Holy Spirit was going to come down in fire. Now, when do the Jews ever think, know about where God came down in fire? That's Mount Sinai. That's their experience of God coming down in fire. And what happened back then? They came out to the mountain to meet God. This is a great day. Moses says, God's going to introduce himself. Cool, cool, we get to meet God. They ring around the mountain, and they're ready. And all of a sudden, fire comes down, and great winds. Think Pentecost. And they were so scared of God, they ran and they hid among the rocks. 
And when Moses came back down, they said to him, don't you ever let God speak to us again. Moses, from now on, you go talk to God and you come back and tell us what he says. They were afraid of God. Now they're on another mountain and they hear that the Holy Spirit's going to come down and fire. I think they were afraid. Mary says, hey guys, don't worry about a thing. I've already been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. He's come upon me and he was nothing but pure love and joy. You have nothing to worry about. Number two, like I said, in Bethlehem at the beginning of the book of Luke gospel, Mary is waiting for the Holy Spirit to overshadow her and she's going to give birth to the physical boy, Jesus. Now she's in the upper room. And what do we think of the upper room? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. It's the birthday of the church. Who's being born? Birthday of who? The church. And what is the church? It's the body of Christ. And if the body of Christ is going to be born on Pentecost, the mother has to be there. Mary's the mother of the church. So Mary's in the upper room. It's specifically mentioned because she has to be there as the mother of the church. And she is there, in a sense, laboring in prayer with the others to bring about the birth of the body of Christ, the mystical body. There's more reasons too, but I mean, those are two good ones, I think. Oh, those are great. And I know we've covered a lot of ground um, just in, in this. Is there any other resources out there that you'd recommend if people want to learn more about Mary? Well, my book on John has a lot to do with Mary. I would also suggest, uh, there's a lot of books out on Mary, but I'm gonna grab this one, especially two of them. And these are by uh, guys that I know, a good friend of mine. This one is called Making Sense of Mary by Gary Mashuda. Gary Mashuda is a real up and coming. I mean, he's an excellent, and a lot of people say this is one of the best books they've ever read on Mary. It really goes through all of the biblical things. My movie, of course, Mary, Mother of God. Another one that I really like, this goes through all of the history, the Bible, archaeology, traditions, and legends on all of the life and history of Mary, including her last days and her assumption and her burial and assumption into heaven and being queen. This is Mary of Nazareth, published by Ignatius Press by a guy named Hesemann. And those are good ones, I would think. I know Tim Staples has a book out on Mary and there's other ones as well. I have a talk on my website called the, um, D Defending Mary, and it's called The Real Woman, The Real Girl and the Woman of Mystery. And what I do is like two sides of one coin. On one side is if you were to meet the real Mary, you probably wouldn't recognize her. She was a little barefoot girl with flies buzzing around her head with her feet all muddy and going to get water at the well. And you would not have recognized her. We see pictures of her with her beautiful, even at the visitation. She comes, she arrives with Elizabeth at the visitation. Oh, she's so huge with a baby and she's perfectly manicured. Her hair is perfect, not a hair out of place, not a stain or dirt on her robes, anything else. But the reality is she just got done walking a hundred miles in very rugged territory, walking, probably in bare feet, or if nothing else, simple sandals. And there, that's not what Mary looked like when she arrived at the visitation, believe me. And she wasn't big because she was the baby was still only as small as a few cells. So we always see these pictures, and I think they do us an injustice, Mary an injustice about what she was like. So I tr in my talk, the real girl, I explained from all my time in Israel what it would what she would have really been like. 
But then I also, the other side of the coin is a woman of mystery, the immaculate conception, the queen of heaven. And that's why art portrays her this way without a hair out of place. They're showing her, they're trying to describe and explain the inner qualities of the woman of mystery. And that's why we see Mary that way. But the movie is good, I think, because it shows both sides to her. And I have another movie called The Day in the Life of the Holy Family. And that one goes through a day in their life and what it was really like to live with Mary, Joseph, and Jesus for a day. Okay. Is that one on your website as well? Yep. CatholicConvert.com. Go to uh, products, and I've got my whole store there. All that stuff is there. All right, great. Well, Steve, I thank you for taking some time on a Saturday morning to come on and talk about our Blessed Mother. I can't thank you enough. Any uh, parting words about Mary before we get off air? Well, as a convert, I think both you and I would say that at one time, we did not accept a thing the Catholic Church said about Mary. And in yeah. fact, as Protestants, we ignored her. We never heard a sermon on Mary. I heard sermons on Eve, on Hannah, on Sarah, on Deborah, never one on Mary, because the pastor was always afraid someone think he's going a little bit Catholic there talking about Mary. But the uh, one should trust the teachings of the church. It's not only true, but it's beautiful. And I've been there, I've studied these things a lot, and I can confirm that the, what the church teaches on Mary is true. And we should cling to it and love it. Well, amen. And Steve's website is catholicconvert.com. Check out the movie, uh, Mary, Mother of God, and his talks on the website as well. And Steve, again, I thank you very much. Thank you, William. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Let's do it again sometime. Oh, definitely. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Steve. You're welcome. That was fun. Yeah, definitely went fast. Always does. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Stu, when you get the link, let me know. I will. I definitely will. And okay. have, and safe journeys to you. Thank you. And same to you. Bye-bye. Right, thank you.